Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. You'll find that on page 811 in our Bibles there in front of you, Matthew chapter 6. And the title of our message this morning is Why Worry? So, obviously, we're going to focus on the topic of worry. And while you're turning there, I want to read to you or tell you a story that I came across with. One morning, Death was walking into a city when a man stopped him and asked him what he was doing. Death answered, I'm going into the city to kill 10,000 people. The man replied, that's terrible that you would kill 10,000 people. Death responded, taking people when their time has come is my job. Today, I have to go get my 10,000. Later, as Death was coming out of the city, the same man met him again, and this time he was furious. He said, you told me this morning that you were going to take 10,000 people, but 70,000 died today. Death answered, don't get mad at me. I only took 10,000. Worry killed the rest. This little story illustrates that anxiety and worry can have a great impact on a person's life. It can consume a person even to the point of death. This morning, as we look at the verses in Matthew, we will see that worry and the kingdom of God and his ways cannot go hand in hand. Jesus tells us here is to put away or put off worry, but instead to seek the kingdom of God and to put on his righteousness. And I think during this season of life or the season of year, uh, as we, you know, have just gone through Black Friday and Thanksgiving and, you know, coming into the Advent season, I think it's good for us to take a moment and to reflect on what our priorities are in our lives and where our focus is. My goal in today's message is not to give you 10 ways to, worry, to defeat worry or how to think positively or have good vibes when things in your life are chaotic. That's not my goal. I want to remind you, and I hope, the Lord will remind you that worry should have no place in our lives so that we do not become ineffective for the kingdom of God. So our scripture this morning, scripture passage, is Matthew 6, 25 to 34. So let's read it together. <clears throat> Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valued than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life, of, or to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. As we look at these verses, I want to submit to you three questions that you can ask yourself this morning to reflect they're, they're pretty simple questions. In fact, this message is, is very simple. There's nothing profound. It's just going through the word and understanding where you are. So these simple questions are a good reminder on whether you're putting off worrying and instead seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness. Question number one. Are you resisting the temptation to worry? Simple question. Are you resisting the temptation to worry? Number two, are you relying on God's provision? And number three, are you ready and available to do God's work? Those are the three questions we're going to go through. And before we look at them, just a quick context or a background of the passage that we're going to be looking at and going through. Chapter 6 is the continuation of the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount on uh, in chapter 5 with the Beatitudes. And here we are in chapter 6 where he actually begins chapter 6 with the disciples' prayer. Lord, teach us how to pray. He then transitions from there to greed, verses 19 to 24, and how we can't serve two masters. And from there, he goes into anxiety. Jesus uses the word the, the word anxious six times in this passage. So obviously, there's some significance to his repetition. Jesus addresses the issue of worry by asking rhetorical questions on how faith and anxiety can't go hand in hand. Our Lord addresses and argues the point that there's no need to worry because God the Father will provide your needs. Therefore, we should be seeking the kingdom of God. And he does this by using a lesser to greater argument, something that the Jews were very familiar with. Um, in fact, this was part of their conversation, um, using this lesser to greater argument. This is how they would reason. This is how they would come to logical and sound conclusions. And so this is how Jesus is addressing his audience. So with that in mind, let's look at the first question. Are you resisting the temptation to worry? It says in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life or what you will eat or drink, or your body, what you will put on. Isn't life more than food and body more than clothing? So Jesus here begins the same, with the same emphatic assertion and authority which he began with the Sermon on the Mount. And he continues here. And there's the word therefore. And when there's a word therefore, you ask, what is it therefore? And here, Jesus is linking what he had said preceding, and we talked about, that, or I just alluded to that very quickly, that it's about serving God with your whole heart and not being divided in your loyalty. Jesus addresses the life-sustaining provisions that we all need and, and, and that we worry about. He covers the needs of the body as a whole, right? Both external and internal. There's food and drink, which we consume to give us strength and, and energy and nourishment to survive, and then clothing to protect our body from the harsh elements from the environment. 
pretty simple. But also in this statement, Jesus also addresses the socioeconomic factor, addressing both the poor and the rich. For the, poor, for the rich, it could be the preoccupation with living a comfortable life, having the, a consumer mentality. For the poor, it's the preoccupation with being uncomfortable, with living in misery, where they don't have enough food, or they don't have even clothes. You see, these people during the time of Jesus had legitimate reasons to be preoccupied with surviving the harsh environment. They did not have the things, the luxury, the things that we have today, right? And so Jesus, as he often did, uses his surroundings to connect with his audience and to drive home his point. And he uses the examples of the birds and the flowers. Let the birds and the flowers remind you not to worry. Learn from the birds. They neither sow, uh, sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? Birds are birds, right? <laughs> I mean, you don't see them flying around busily storing up food. When you observe a little bird outside, each day they, they go about and they find the food that they need for that day. When they're hungry, they go and, and find the food. Birds are completely dependent on nature. They're dependent on the creator of this nature to provide for them. And there's a far greater worth for us as his children than these birds. You are worth so much more than a little bird. Do you believe that? He even asks, are you not more valuable? If the Father can provide for the birds that can do nothing to secure any sort of food for themselves, but are completely and wholly trusting in Him, how much more does He care for you, who we have the ability, we have resources, we have advanced technology, we have information at our fingertips, we have so much more. How much more valuable are we? And then he continues in verse 27. Worrying is not going to add to your life. If you want to live longer, if, or if you want to live a long life, it's definitely not going to happen, or you're not, definitely not going to achieve it by worrying. I can tell you that right now. I don't know if you've ever seen on TV, um, you know, or in newspapers, they, they um, usually do like an interview with the oldest living person. I've never heard them say, well, I've made it this far because I worried so much and, you know, I was always stressed and here I am. You know, it's always something positive. It's always something about being focused on something other than worrying. Worry can actually shorten one's life. It can actually cause a person to miss out on life, but will never prolong a life. And I can see Jesus as he's teaching them about the birds. He's out on the countryside, on the hillside, and as he's sitting down, as he's teaching, I'm sure he looked out, out where he was, and he saw, and even sitting down, he saw the grass, the flowers. And he gives them that second example. Look at the flowers. Learn from the flowers. 
And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And though it says lilies here, a better translation is wildflowers in the field. And that's why I'm saying flowers. Think about it. These flowers have a very short lifespan, right? They don't control what happens to them. They're in the environment, the sun, the wind, the rain, humans, animals. They have no control over what happens to them. They don't choose what they look like. It's God who provides for them and clothes them or gives them their beauty. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon's magnificence was not in just his clothing, in what he wore, but it's how he adorned himself to show his magnificence. The jewelry, you, you know Solomon was probably the richest man ever to live on the face of the earth. And he had amassed such a great wealth and so many, I'm sure, beautiful and wonderful things. So jewelry, gold, silver, precious stones. Even Solomon, with all that, does not compare to one of these little flowers that the Lord adorns. Are you seeing a, are you seeing a pattern here? that everything is dependent on God's sovereignty and his goodness. Not only that, but the illusion of control that, that you think that you have in your life is really foolishness. It is God who is and always provide for you. He'll always provide for you, and he's always in control of what he gives to you. He orchestrates and he directs, and we don't always know why or how, but he still follows through. So if God, who clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, verse 30, but tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, or ye of little faith? You see, the people would use the grass or these flowers for fuel right? To warm their houses, to cook their food. They, they didn't have microwaves back then. They needed to survive, and so this is how they would do it, with fire. And so these flowers, this grass, this was used to provide for them. So if God can take care of these flowers, which he adorns with beauty for his pleasure, yet they wither and people use them for fire, Again, how much more important are we in God's eyes? How much more will he take care of us? Or you of little faith. That was the term that Jesus usually used for his disciples. And you can almost hear the frustration in his voice. Almost like, silly disciple, where's your faith? If you're going through a difficult circumstance or if you're consumed by worry this morning, I want to ask you this question and I genuinely want to ask you this and, and I lovingly, lovingly want to ask you this question. How is your faith in trusting the God of this Bible? How is your faith in trusting God to provide your needs? 
Are you relying on God's provision? And that's our second point, right? The second question. Are you relying on God's provision? Are you relying on God's provision for your life, for your family, for your circumstances, for your situations? You know, it's easy to want comfort and ease of life, but this is not what God promises, nor is it what we should be striving for. This world encourages for us to try to meet the status quo of those that are around us, right? The world encourages us to fight, to climb the ladder of success for more food, for better clothing, for wealth, for better job, comfort, luxury. You must remember that all these things, all that you have, is because of God the Father. And that we are to continually rely on him. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For even the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them as well. So if, let's think through this again, if God can take care of the lower orders of creation, if he can take care of the birds and little squirrels and chipmunks and flowers, how much more will he take care of those who he created in his own image? You who are created in God's image. How much more do you think he loves you and wants to care for you and provide for your needs? So do not be anxious. Do you see that, the repetition? Don't be anxious. Don't worry about your needs because we all have needs, right? Finances, physical health, job security. I mean, I need a car right now, right? We all have needs. But the Father knows that your needs are, and he will provide them. Jesus even gives the final example in verse 32. And the example this time is of the unbelievers, the Gentiles. The Gentiles, just so you know, were those that, that were the non-Jews, the pagans of the world the surrounding nations that refused to bow down to worship the one and true living God. These religions were dominated with fear and appeasement, and they were based on how they could please their deities. It was, it was a works-based system, really. In fact, these pagan religions also emphasized a preoccupation with the physical aspects of the body. So, Ironically, exercise and food consumptions were part of these religions. Kind of reminds, or it's very similar to even today, right? Where you see so many advertisements and commercials for gyms and getting in shape and better health and weight loss and for restaurants and fast food and all-you-can-eat buffets. It's so many options and, and, and so much pressure. But if God can provide for the Gentiles, again, how much more is he going to provide for his chosen people? But what ends up happening is that we try to pursue our own things in our own ways. And so what happens is we become self-centered, right? And focus on our circumstances, focus on our needs. And really, it takes our attention, it takes our focus off of him and participating in what God has commanded us. 
We pursue the wrong priorities, and we end up sitting on the sideline rather than running the race which is set before us. Not only that, but when, you, when you're worrying or when you worry, you're really acting like one of these Gentiles with your lack of faith. What we're really doing when we constantly live in fear and worry is that we're questioning God. We're questioning his goodness. Not really trusting our Father. Our Father who is the creator, the sustainer, the author, the finisher, the perfecter, the great I am, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of gods. This is our Father. A.W. Pink has said, Satan is ever seeking to inject that poison into your hearts to distrust God's goodness, especially in connection with his commandments. This is what really lies behind all evil, lusting, and disobedience. A discontent with your position and portion, a craving from something which God has wisely held from us, Reject any suggestion that God is unduly severe, severe with us or with you. Resist with the utmost abhorrence anything that causes you to doubt God's love and his loving kindness, his hased love. Remember that? Allow nothing to make you question the father's love for his child. Do you trust your Heavenly Father. Do you trust your Heavenly Father the way your children trust you? We have two boys. There's many families here that have little children. I'm sure your kids in the morning don't come to you first thing in the morning, Daddy, where, where am I going to get food? Where am I going to get clothing? Daddy, I, I, where are you gonna provide, how are you going to provide this for me? We as parents know what our children need. And we are more than willing, we are more than able, we're more than willing to sacrifice to give to our children. Because we care for them, because we love them. And so they trust us. They'll trust that we will meet their needs. Do you trust your Heavenly Father to meet your need? Guard your hearts and your minds from doubting the goodness and the love of God for you. Remind yourself through his promises, remember who you are, that you are the child of the Most High. Don't sit idly by, get there, get in there, get in the race. And this brings us to our last question from this passage, and and I want to spend time here. Are you ready and available to do God's work? Instead of sitting idly by, instead of just sitting on the sideline, get in there. Get in there to do the work of God, what he's called you to do. So are you this morning ready and available and doing the work of God? Up to this point, Jesus has conveyed to us that being consumed by worry is futile, right? So now he changes his his focus. He changes the direction but now he gives us the answer on what we should focus on. 
but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He tells his hearers to seek the kingdom of God. The priority of his disciples is not to focus on themselves, is to not focus on their circumstances or needs, but to focus on God's kingdom and his righteousness. I'm sure you've read this passage before, and I'm sure you're thinking, you know, I already know this. I know I need to seek God's kingdom, and, you know, this doesn't really alleviate my, my worries. Well, Dear friend, I hope this morning the Lord will give you a fresh perspective, a renewed perspective in understanding the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And really, this begins by how you reprioritize your life and your focus. But seek first the kingdom of God. The first here is not referring to order, but it's actually referring to importance. The priority of his disciples is the kingdom and to have a, a kingdom mindset, a kingdom perspective, and to constantly have that. So what is the kingdom of God? Somewhere to ask you, what's the kingdom of God? Well, there are many references to the kingdom of God throughout Scripture, both in the Old Testament, the Gospels, right, in the writings of Paul. In fact, the kingdom of God is synonymous with the kingdom of heaven. When you see those two, they're, they're, they're synonymous. They're the same. And the kingdom of God actually has several aspects. And the two aspects that I want to just briefly mention to you is the physical aspect and the spiritual aspect. We can appreciate the kingdom of God physically in that the Lord is sovereign over the entire universe, right? Over all his creation. God created everything, planets, constellations, galaxies, this earth, down to the, the smallest micro, microbes and everything else. He has created everything, and everything belongs to him. So he is, by definition, the king of kings and the lord of lords and the god of gods over the entire universe. That's the physical aspect. The spiritual aspect, there's also that, which is the kingdom of God, which involves repentance, it involves a new birth, it involves a God who rules over your heart. You remember we were part of Satan's kingdom, right? We were part of, we were dead in our sins, the Bible tells us. But when we were saved, we submitted to a new king, a new authority, a new Lord, and now we are part of his kingdom. And that is the spiritual aspect of it. So it makes sense to seek first the kingdom because we're now under a new king and we are to be the heralds or messengers of this king who has conquered death and who reigns in our lives. So we are to seek to do his will. And what is his will? It's to proclaim the message of hope and salvation to all those who are lost and dying, who are not part of God's kingdom. We are to be the messengers to proclaim that news to them. But why would God, or why would the Lord say, 
that we should seek first his righteousness as well. You know, in our uh, Tuesday group, uh, evening group, community group, we began to go through the book of Romans. And lo and behold, as I was preparing for that, Paul says something very similar in Romans chapter uh, 1, verses 16 and 17. And I'm going to read that to you very quickly. He says, and you're pretty, I'm sure you're all familiar with these uh, verses. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, meaning everyone. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul says the same thing that Jesus commands, and we are, that we are to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness, but Paul was kind enough to expound on that and shed some more light on the righteousness of God. So I think it's important for us to understand the righteousness of God. In fact, it's so funny this morning, Adam, uh, in our fellowship hour, talked about the righteousness of God. We hadn't even really talked about it. I, you know, again, it's the Lord orchestrating this. And I think it's important for us to understand the righteousness of God. So I think it's important for us to first define what righteousness of God is. God's righteousness is an attribute of God's character. Did you get that? God's righteousness is an attribute of God's character. That one sentence is your answer to your worries. You want to worry less? Then get to know your father more. You want to know how to worry less? Get to know the God who is taking care of you. Get to know your father who provides all your needs so that you can trust him more, so that you can rest in his promises and in his goodness. God's righteousness is an attribute of his character, who he is. As one writer puts it, this means that God himself is just, true, utterly fair, consistent, glorious, and holy. He is righteous. His righteousness is the utter rightness of his character right to the the core of his glorious being. We read that this morning in our New Testament passage as well, right? What does Paul tell us to, to focus on in Philippians? On that which is true, right? Do you notice that Jesus repeats that God will provide? He will provide. He will provide. So you notice that It's really God who's doing the work in your life. It is God who is active in the life of a person. God's righteousness is not static. It's dynamic. It's it's a dynamic activity which shows that God is doing the right thing in your life. And he does this especially by keeping his promises, by being faithful. If he says he's going to provide, if he says he's going to do something, he does it. There's not one single promise in the Bible where God did not follow through or it did not come true. And that's the same God that you serve. 
But even more than God providing our basic needs, there's a greater example, the greatest example of God's righteousness, which is displayed in him reaching out to rescue his people. God not only did the right thing, but also a loving thing. This is the great combination of God's justice and his love, both working together to rescue us from our sins. How did he do this? We see that through the unfolding of his redemptive plan, right? The ultimate, ultimately culminating with Jesus Christ, the God-man who came to rescue us because we were unrighteous, because we were unlovable. God's righteousness is his saving activity in your life. It is an expression of his power to save. This is the gospel. This is the good news. The work and obedience of Jesus Christ for you because you were worth it. Oh, and in case you didn't know, it's a free gift. It's a free gift to all those who believe. We are in a right relationship with God by grace alone, received by faith alone. It is a free gift. So you understand that we cannot have this righteousness or we cannot earn this righteousness. We cannot buy this righteousness. We cannot attain it. This means that we come before him with empty hands and we must continue to trust him and to submit to him with empty hands. So what does seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness imply? It implies obedience and submission to all that the Father desires. It is living by faith which was imparted to us to live in obedience, right? That's what Paul says. The righteous shall live by faith. It's revealed to us from faith for faith. So if God has given you a free gift, an undeserved gift of rescuing you and saving your soul from eternal separation and condemnation, don't you think that he will provide your basic needs? But what happens often, and I am guilty of this, what happens is that we worry and we make ourselves the center of everything. Everything revolves around us. And so we focus on how we can rescue ourselves. If only I had more money, a better house, more comfort, more whatever, fill in the blank. We try to rescue ourselves. When, you, when your desire is to grow in affection and submission to God's will and his calling and his continual work in your life, you won't have any room in your heart or in your mind to worry. You won't. Maybe then you and I can say, as Paul did in Philippians 8, 3, 8, and 9, Right? Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I, was, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so, in chapter 4, Paul can say that he can now rejoice. He's learned to be content in all circumstances because he's pursuing the righteousness of God, the righteousness that we now also have through Christ. And so this is to be your motivation when you are overcome with anxiety and worry. This is what you need because we live in a world, we live in a culture that is constantly telling us that we need more things in our lives. That we need these things to feel better, to feel good. But ultimately, it's all rubbish. That's why it's foolishness to, tr to worry and be anxious about the things of this world because it is temporary and it's fading. A trial is but a season in your life. Do you understand that, my friend? We all go through hardships. We all go through trials. And there's, there are periods in our life where the Lord allows circumstances, the needs that are not being met. We all have these seasons of life. But I hope that you will see that these seasons of life are used to refine you, to sanctify you, to grow you in your faith, to give you an opportunity to honor the Lord by trusting in him because he is good and he is in control. Listen, a Christian life is not a comfortable life. I, I, I want to tell you that. It's not. And if you're constantly trying to pursue a comfortable life through whatever you can gain or here on earth or how are you can attain it, then I would question your priorities and your allegiance. As we read earlier, what it comes down to is being content in all circumstances, right? As Paul says in Philippians 4, and bowing the knee and trusting in submission to Jesus the Lord both at the start and all throughout your Christian life, learning to take your eyes off of yourself and putting your eyes on him. Again, you came to him with empty hands. So why do you now waste your time and energy trying to gain control or security in your circumstances and your needs by trying to fill your lives and your hands with futile things? John Piper writes, when people cast fear to the wind and spend themselves and risk their lives and fortune in the cause of God's truth and in love for other people, then God is revealed for who he really is, infinitely valuable and satisfying. So much so that his people don't need the fleeting pleasures of sin in order to be content. I want to encourage you, dear friends, as Jesus commands and as Paul affirms, to walk in faith and humility, to have a spirit of 
gratitude, to grow in your affections for Jesus Christ, to remind yourself that you came into the world with nothing and you leave this world with nothing. That's from the physical perspective. From the spiritual perspective, you came into this world with nothing, but you are leaving with everything. Everything. Everything that matters. Your salvation, your eternal security, a new master, a new king, a new kingdom, a new identity. That is what you're leaving with. And when you're overwhelmed with worry and anxiety, preach the gospel to yourself. Preach it daily, which has saved you. Thereby, you can go and make disciples, sharing the good news with those who are lost. And this takes away our preoccupation with worries and anxieties and fears because our focus, again, shifts from him or from our circumstances to him. Lastly, we have another therefore in verse 34, which carries on the argument in the logical sequence. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. To sum it up, Jesus tells us here, listen, tomorrow may not even come for you, so, so why are you worried? Why are you worried about things that haven't even occurred? This world does not guarantee a future, but Christ does. I hope that as you reflect on how precious you are and how much worth you have because of Jesus, that you would rejoice and be thankful in all circumstances and for all your needs. I want to conclude by saying that as you examine your life of worry and anxiousness, because we all have it. So I'm not saying you should be perfect and not have it. But as you examine when you are anxious and when you are worried, I hope and pray that the Spirit of God would comfort you through his promises. That the Spirit of God would remind you of your eternal security and your priorities. And as you prioritize and pursue Jesus Christ, that he will become infinitely valuable and satisfying to your life. That as you pursue his righteousness, that your affections and love would abound by obeying him, by submitting him, by submitting to his will, and desiring to glorify the God who can be trusted, your Father. Let's pray.